Well, tonight we are going to do just a couple of verses of Hebrews. We're not going to get far, but next week we will finish Hebrews, chapter 12. Yeah. So, we will finish chapter 12, and then just a couple of weeks in chapter 13, I think, is all. And so we will be kind of wrapping up Hebrews shortly. And then we're going to, as I said, do the book of Esther. Um, and beyond that, I don't know. But anyway, for now, I've got some other... There's so many things I would like to take a week to after Esther to just show you some things on, on the Hebrew language and just how amazingly impressive that is and the messages that are within the words kind of thing. I, I'll just leave it at that. Um, so I've been working on uh, putting together a presentation that will kind of deal with that too. So anyway, for tonight, um, Hebrews chapter 12 I'm going to just back up one verse to give you some more context here. In verse 15, it says, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. So last week he's talking about, first of all, that it was possible to fall short. You might, I believe, to lose your salvation in a sense, you might say, uh, because you fall short of the grace of God. We're not talking about, you know, just being a Christian that, you know, has some problems. We're talking about falling short of the grace of God, that they are not saved people. And he's saying, be careful so that this doesn't happen to you. That you don't fall out of grace. And if you remember before, he's been talking about this cheap grace. So don't grab on to this cheap grace message so much. And I was talking with somebody, I don't even remember who now, this week. But I was telling my wife later about it that I, I feel like, and I've been guilty of this myself, of making Christianity too easy. And we often say things like, we make Christianity too difficult. It's not that difficult. It's so easy. It's just a grace. You believe in Jesus, wham, bam, you're done. You're in. And I'd say I kind of agree with that to a point, but yet I also strongly disagree with that. I think Christianity is hard. I think it's, it's, a, it's a lot of work. It's a fight against the yeah, every day you're fighting against the flesh, you're fighting against the devil, uh, you're fighting against the world, the culture. I, I think Christianity is hard. And we've said, well, it's just easy, you just believe. But I, I put it this way, I was kind of thinking about the, the parable of the treasures and how we have this hidden treasure. And Jesus says the guy you know, finds this treasure and he goes sells everything he has so that he can get this treasure. Well, I feel like a lot of people in this church with the easy believism kind of theology are having this attitude of they're fine knowing that the treasure's out there. They know the treasure's out there. I believe it's out there, so now let me go live my life. No, you have to go searching and seeking. And the scriptures in the New Testament even are filled with verses talking about that seeking this out. And we're going to kind of end kind of circling back to that. 
But the bottom line is, there is work, and you have to be careful, you have to be watchful, so that you do not become like Esau. Because he fell out of the grace of God. Now, on one hand, you might say he was born into the church. I know a lot of people who have been born into the church and they think they're saved simply because that's all they know. That's all they've done. They grew up in the church. They lived in the church. They went to church. And that's all they know. But to them, it's just what you do. It's just, I don't know, I just, we always did it on Sunday, right? And Esau was born under the house of Abraham, ultimately. Okay, now... Granted, there was a prophecy, but nonetheless, he was born into the church, you might say. And he didn't make it. The Bible tells us he didn't make it because he was godless. And that should concern us a little bit. Now, I'm not preaching a works righteous thing here. What I'm preaching is, is I think that that flesh and the devil are constantly wanting to steal your faith away and get you distracted and keep you from <clears throat> fixing your eyes on Jesus so that you will go live your life just with the knowledge that there is a treasure out there, not seeking it and not truly ever finding it. And that is scary. So, this week the writer is giving us this example of Esau looking back at this part, and I think that it's important to connect this to what we're talking about. He's talking about Esau. He's, he's thinking. When he's talking about falling short of the grace of God, his mind goes to Esau. That's where he takes you. So we're going to be jumping around a little bit tonight. As I said, we're not going to cover a lot of verses in Hebrews. I'm going to give you some... Uh, we're going to really look in Genesis 25 a lot because I think because the writer is bringing up Esau here, it is important for us to dive into what does this mean to fall short of the grace of God like Esau. What does that mean for us? How does that relate? And I think Esau's life <clears throat> is very prophetic. So that's what we're going to look at here. In Genesis 25, verse 21, it says, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, side note here that I do think is also just really important and neat is this is what a husband's supposed to do. When their wife is struggling with something, I find it interesting she was barren and she was praying for a lot of years and the husband stepped in and that husband is to be a picture of that protector of his wife and it's when he steps in that we see some things taking place here. Now, that does not mean... Don't take me wrong here, women, that your prayers are not effective. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, is that men should be standing up for their wives and fighting on their knees for their wives. That's part of your role as a husband. So, verse 22, But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. So this is a woman that seeks after God. This is a woman who... You know, you can just see some great, great uh, character here in her. Uh, I was doing my messages, my little videos on animals today for a zoology course that I'm filming videos for and talking about the camel and how the camel will drink up to 30, 40 gallons in one drinking. And I always think about Rebecca here 
because when the servant went to get a wife for Isaac, he said, you know, Lord, let this woman say, yeah, I'll not only give you a drink, but I'll water your camels too. And how that spoke of the character of Rebecca, that she was saying, man, there's more than one camel. She probably had to bring 60, 70 gallons of water, maybe more because of all the stuff that was brought there to water those camels. So for her to offer that spoke well of her character. And I kind of think that's why the servant was even going there to begin with. He said, I want a woman who's a hardworking, you know, uh, hospitable woman. And that's what Rebecca is. And not only that, but she's one that chases after God. When there's a problem, she goes after to, to seek the Lord. And so uh, a wonderful, incredible woman that we're seeing here. Oftentimes I see women today um, feeling like the Bible does not give women much credibility or hold them in high esteem. And... I understand that in some cases, but I can tell you there are so many women who are so impressive in Scripture, and not only that, that the Bible even talks about them as role models that you should go after. And so uh, Rebecca is one of them. Anyway, um, the Targum. Now this is not an apocryphal thing. The Targum is simply the Aramaic, which is the language Jesus spoke, translation of the Old Testament. That's all the Targum is, all right? So Targum, Jonathan states in Genesis 25:22, and the children pressed in her womb as men doing battle. So there was a war going on in her belly, in her womb. And what's going to be prophetic about this whole message and what, with Esau is this, that same war is going on to this very day kind of a picture of the world against Christianity. I'm going to take you to Joel, because Joel is going to show you a little bit about this prophetic uh, battle that would take place. It says this in Joel 3, verse 19, Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, because of violence against the people of Judah, for they have shed innocent blood in their land. Or Amos 1.11, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So Esau again becomes the Edomites, and now we see far down the road after they are long dead, you know, Esau and Jacob, that Joel and Amos are basically giving a pronouncement of judgment from God on the people of Edom. Now, this has been prophesied even before they were born. God said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated as well. And I know I used to have problems with that. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. How... How can that be? You know, God is this loving God, and he doesn't hate anybody, and all of that kind of thing. Not true. Not true. Okay, God hates sin. And while he, you know, loves the world, when those reject him, when he comes in his wrath to bring judgment, 
he, there's going to be, I don't even like saying the word, but it's what scripture, hatred, because he hates sin. And it just seems so wrong for us to say that God can hate. But yet the scriptures do talk about that. Um, Noah sent me, I don't know where he is, now there he is, some um, Catholic priest doing a, a sermon that was like, wow, amazing. And you could see he hates sin. And I don't know, I, I posted it on the Creation Instruction Facebook page or something, I think. Um, but blew me away. I mean, he, he basically walks off the, uh, the pulpit and everybody starts clapping. And he says, don't clap. You need to have your heads hung in shame. And he walks away. And he was just basically scolding everybody because of abortion and the Catholic Church and what they're doing in, in supporting this and, and President Biden and all of this kind of stuff. But bottom line is, he hates sin. There is a righteous hatred that we should have of sin. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness, the Bible says. Today, we don't have a hatred of sin. Oh, certain sins, maybe, oh, I, I hate that child, you know, sexual molestation, I hate that. And, well, you know, we'll pick the big ones, I hate abortion. God hates sin. He hates drunkenness. He hates his name being taken in vain. He hates people not honoring the Sabbath. He hates the, any of the Ten Commandments. Lying. And this is the attitude we're supposed to have in our heart. A hatred, a righteous anger of sin. But where do you find that today? And this is what we should have. Now, again, I sin all the time. And that's the key. I should hate that about me. I should be incensed because of it. So, anyway, we're not used to thinking of God in this ways, but again, he, he is a, a lion as well as a lamb. And this is the kind of picture we're seeing of God as we look at Esau and the Edomites here. So, Ultimately, the prophetic picture that you're going to see between Jacob and Esau is a picture of good and evil. And you might even say God and the devil. The worldly versus the godly. And God is calling Jacob out of the world here. Just as he calls us to come out of the world. So when the writer of Hebrews is talking about don't be godless like Esau, he's saying... Get away from that stuff. Come out because I hate that stuff. I want you to be separate. And, you know, Corinthians says that we are to be separate. We are to be holy. We're not to blend in. We're not to be like everybody else in the world. We are to look different. So it goes on here in verse 22. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went and inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Well, 
we're seeing here again Re Rebecca's relationship with the Lord seeking, seeking him out, and God answers them. And he says, two nations are in your womb. In other words, we know the Edomites and the Jews, but this is a bigger picture. And going back to the Targum, we're going to see this kind of laid out. It, it becomes more clear that this is just more than, hey, we're going to have a family feud going on. There's going to be a condition with that, though, which is going to be interesting here. Uh, keep that in mind, that when God says that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world, I think we should and can take comfort in that. But there's a condition to it, just like with this. Well, you'll see that coming up. In verse 23, the Lord said to her, two people are in your womb, looking at this again, two kingdoms. This is in, in the book of uh, the Targum, basically, same thing, but with the Aramaic translation. Two kingdoms from the, thy womb shall be separated. One kingdom shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger if, notice that if, if the children of the younger will keep the commandments of the law. Now, who's the younger? The Jews, Jacob and, and his descendants. Yeah. So, again, it's like this cheap grace that we're throwing around today. We forget the if. That a covenant means between two parties. That means that this, any covenant is between two people. You can't have a covenant without a, a two parties. And so here we see this big if staring us in the face. And that tells us that not all Israel is going to be called Israel. I don't know. You know, again, it's a matter of just the, the different texts and manuscripts that are used. And that's why we even get differences between the NIV and the... King James and the RSV and the ESV. Some will even in your footnotes say some manuscripts don't have this or some will say the earlier manuscripts you know, have this and, and they just have to pick and choose which ones. It's a, that's a pretty big thing. Now, is this any new thing that isn't somewhere else in Scripture? Not at all. We see it all over the place as conditional. But at least in this text, it does make a big difference. In Exodus 19, verse 3, we kind of see another example. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, the younger, right? Tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So that's why I say I would not even bring up something, you know, from any other book if it didn't agree with what the scriptures are saying already. So I don't think Targum, uh, Jonathan here in Genesis is saying anything out of line. I think it was probably in the original and I think it was good. Because it's saying the exact same thing here in Exodus. Down the road. That if and then. And we, in the church because of, I believe, cheap grace, 
I think we have forgotten that. We have made it to be such an easy thing to be a Christian. You know the treasure's there? Good, wonderful. Now go and live your life and be happy. You don't need to do anything. That's where we're at. Verse 24 in Genesis says this, So when her days were fulfilled to her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. Now in Hebrew that's aduma, adum, adom. Basically Edom. These become the Edomites. And so it's kind of interesting to see this connection because there's even a prophetic perspective in what he looks like. Okay, Adom. He, Edom, Adom. He was like a hairy garment. The word hairy in Hebrew is se'ar. And where is he going to end up living? Seir, S-E-I-R. And so... Even in there, there's a prophetic picture of who he's going to be, where he's going to live, that kind of thing. So he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, Yaakov. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So... It's prophetic as well that Jacob is grabbing his heel. We read this and you think, oh, neat story. But it's in Scripture for a reason, not just because, oh, that's kind of a neat little tidbit to add in there. He's trying to tell you something. What does that mean that Jacob is grabbing the heel? Now, we know the stories. A lot of people say, well, Jacob is this supplanter. That's what his name means. Some people say deceiver. I don't believe that that's the case. I've heard many a sermon talked about with Jacob being this deceiver. And, but who calls him that? Esau. I think we talked about this months and months ago. When the blessing is taken, Esau says, Isn't he rightly called the deceiver? He's deceived me these two times. Right? Well... I think that this is more prophetic. God knew God was doing these things. I'm not saying that he was without sin. We're all, you know, sinners. But what I am saying is I think that Esau or Jacob has gotten a bad rap. We hear as well that Esau was this man of the fields. Jacob was a man of the tents. And we kind of make that look like he was some sissy mama's boy. And I, I remember years and years ago teaching that and myself. And I've come to realize I was wrong. He is not a sissy mama's boy. I mean, the guy wrestles with God for longer than I could ever do, right? Let alone other uh, things that he will do. But more so, what it means when you are a man of the tent, it was, that meant that you were a man of studying God's word. Like going to a Shiva today, you, you're learning scripture. In other words, what it's telling us is that this is a guy who is chasing after, seeking the treasure. That's what it means to be a man of the tent. And any Jew would be able to tell you that. Okay, but we've lost that in our American culture. So he was going after the, the treasure. So I'm going to take you 
and show you in 2 Esdras. This is an apocryphal book here again. Now again, I wouldn't bring it up if it didn't really agree with Scripture. But nonetheless, 2 Esdras is going to talk about this, and this is kind of a good, uh, kind of a companion book to the book of Revelation. It, it lines up with Revelation really well. But what ends up happening here in 2 Esdras is Esdras is going to be talking to an angel and he's asking him what is going to be the sign of the end times. Basically exactly like we see in Matthew chapter 24 when the disciples are coming to Yeshua saying, what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus answers. Well here, Esdras asks this angel and the angel answers. That's what's going on. And he says, I answered and said, what will be the dividing of the times? Oh, when will be the end of the first age and the beginning of the age that follows? He said to me, from Abraham to Isaac, because from him were born Jacob and Esau. For Jacob's hand held Esau's heel from the beginning. Now, Esau is the end of this age, and Jacob is the beginning of the age that follows. The beginning of a person is the hand, and the end of a person is the heel. Seek for nothing else, Ezra, between the heel and the hand. So what does that mean? He's basically saying this. Focus on the coming of the Messiah between the heel and the hand. He says, don't focus on anything but that. What happens between the coming of this age and the other? Yeshua. Yeshua comes. He is the beginning of the new and the end of the old. Okay? So, nothing more to seek than Yeshua, ultimately. But I want you to see that from a Jewish perspective, they're seeing Jacob and Esau as two different eras. And I think that's why Esau ultimately had to end. I find it interesting, the last we really do hear of the true es uh, descendants of Esau is Herod. Herod was an Idumean. After Herod, we, as far as we know, they, they've been gone. The, the bloodline of Esau, gone. And here it's saying, when one ends and the other begins. Esau literally seems to end at the time of Yeshua's coming. So, kind of interesting. Like I said, go read the book of Obadiah. The whole thing is about the destruction of the Idumeans, the, the descendants of Esau. So going back to Genesis again, in verse 27, So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. Now, I kind of explained that a little bit, but let me take you to the Targum as well on this. And it says, And the lads grew, and Esau was a man of idleness, or leisure, to catch birds and beasts, a man going forth into the field to kill lives, as Nimrod had killed, and Hanach, Enoch, his son. So the sages understood a hunter, not as what you and I would say, hey, I'm a hunter, I go and hunt deer and whatnot. They saw it as Nimrod, that it was a character flaw. And 
you know, hunters, I know uh, Bill Cloud kind of talks about this, hunters are, are deceptive. They get camouflaged up. They do it. You, your goal is to deceive the prey. And that very well, that may be what Esau did his whole life, that Jacob knew this, that he was one of those guys, you all know people like that, who are so nice and kind to you, but you know they'll, they'll stick you in the, a knife in your back as soon as you're gone, right? That they're deceptive and they pretend to be somebody they're not. They pretend to be these good Christians, and yet, you know, they're out, you know, at the bars getting drunk, cussing and swearing, doing whatever, right? That is the kind of character of Esau, deceptive. There's so many examples just in Esau's life of that. Whereas Jacob gets the one that seems to be the deceiver, but it's probably Esau that was actually the deceptive one. Remember when after Jacob wrestles with God, he goes and he meets Esau and he sends droves ahead of him and, and he, you know, everything seems to be fine. And, but Jacob doesn't go with him. There seemed to be some distrust of him. I think Jacob knew that on the outside everything looks good, but on the inside he's a ravenous wolf. These are the kind that Jude talks about, these ravenous wolves that will slip in among the congregations to seek and devour and all those kind of things. So to be a hunter, when we see that in Scripture, don't think of it as what you and I would be called a hunter. This is speaking more of Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Most people think that meant like against the Lord, that he was the hunter of souls to steal them away. So kind of interesting. Now, comparing him to Nimrod here, makes that much more clear, I think. But anyway, um, I think that this is kind of a picture. Nimrod is a picture of the Antichrist, uh, the Tower of Babel. He is one that supposedly built the Tower of Babel, all that kind of thing as well. This kingdom that was going to be ungodly, against God, not doing what God told them to do, you know, spread out, multiply, that kind of thing. So anyway, it's just interesting that the first two hunters of the Bible, Nimrod and Esau, are both ungodly and in some pretty major ways, being satanic figures. When Jacob is grabbing the heel, in the Hebrew as you read this, it is pretty fascinating. It says when Jacob is running away from Esau and he's going to Laban, he lays down and at Bethel when he sees the, the ladder going up and down from heaven and the angels ascending and descending, basically from heaven. It says that the stone that he laid by his head, it doesn't, in the Hebrew it says heads, plural. And so the Jews see this stone because it calls the stone, not a stone, but the stone. They see it as that Avon Hashatia, which is the stone of foundation, the foundation stone. The Jews, many of them, believe that is the stone upon which the temple was now built. Okay? They see that, and I probably agree with I don't necessarily agree with that, but they see that stone as a messianic picture. Because Jesus is the rock of our salvation, he is the stone, the, the building, the stone that the builders rejected, all of these references that we could look at for Yeshua being that stone. So they see 
that stone being a messianic picture. I think it's quite possible that that is a picture of Christ with Jacob. And when it says heads, it is a reference to that stone, Jesus, Yeshua, the word of God, is going to protect all of the heads of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when, and this is how the Jews see it, like Ron even agreed with that, that when he's got his hand, grabbing the heel, it isn't like he is fighting with him as much as he is protecting his own head as he's being born. And so I think that there's a lot to that. So again, just not a deceiver, not a heel grabber, but a protector. So um, Anyway, a satanic picture. The Jews would even see Nimrod or Esau being a picture of an antichrist type thing. Pharaoh, same thing. They see Pharaoh as an antichrist picture. So I'm going to take you to the book of Jubilees, again, in a, uh, an extra biblical book here, um, but just kind of show you uh, just some flavoring to this story that we see in Scripture. It says in Jubilees 35, And now my heart is troubled because of all his deeds. Neither he nor his seed is to be saved, for they are those who will be destroyed from the earth, talking about Esau's descendants here, and who will be rooted out from under heaven, for he has forsaken the God of Abraham and gone after his wives and after their uncleanliness and after their error, he and his children. So, it's just kind of interesting that here it's mentioned about Esau taking these wives. God had forbidden them already to not take foreign wives. They weren't supposed to do that. Remember a lot of the Ten Commandments that we read and whatnot in the days of Moses? They already knew most of that stuff. It had already been proclaimed. It is now written down on stone. Well, He's taking these foreign wives, and this greatly displeases his mom and dad. So this is why his mom and dad tell Jacob, he said, you know, whatever you do, don't get a wife from around here. Go to my, you know, the family, basically. They knew that. They didn't want a, a Hittite wife. Well, this is what we see in the Bible. It says, when Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Basemuth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they were a, great, a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. And then in verse 8 of chapter 28, it says, also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father, Isaac. So when Esau realizes that it displeases him, what's he going to do? If you remember... He goes and gets a wife from Ishmael's descendants. Kind of the family, but kind of not the family. The enemy of the family. Yeah, the wrong side of the family. Yeah, and so I don't know if he was thinking that he was doing good and actually compounding his sin, or if he was stoking the coals a little bit too. Could be either or, him being deceptive. It says this in verse 9 of chapter 28. Esau went to Ishmael, took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, 
Abram's, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. So, um, you kind of look at it this way. Those who are in bondage to sin already, they just do more sin. I think of the Proverbs, a dog returns to his vomit. That's what the ungodly do. And I'm sure you guys know people like that who they just can't make a good decision to save their life. <laughs> Literally. You know? That's kind of what Esau is doing. The world has got him and he just can't shake himself from it to do what is right. This is the problem with Esau's heart. And I think that it's easy for us to, to get into that little rut ourselves. It's always hard to go backwards. And sometimes when you're, you're living in a comfortable world and, and you know, I, I'm not thinking about God, I'm not reading my Bible, I'm just living life and doing the work I have to do and trying to find a little time to have some fun and fish and go to, on vacations here and there and whatever, but we, we don't spend time in the Word. We don't spend time chasing after the treasure. And then we finally realize it, and it's so hard to do it. It's just like our family, when we started to, to keep the Sabbath, I was talking with Eden, or Eden was talking with me here yesterday, I think, and just she was talking with somebody at school about how it was hard at first to follow the Sabbath. Well, why? Well, because as a father, I didn't train her up from a wee little girl to, to do it. So she had to do it later in life, and she had to get rid of all of those things to, to remember to, to try and honor the Sabbath. And now she says, but now I look forward to it every day, every week. And some of you can kind of relate to that. There is a blessing in it, but once we've been feeding from the trough, the pig's trough, it's hard to get away from it sometimes. It takes a seeking to go after that treasure. That's the, the way Esau was. I, I think that this kid from, you know, there are some kids you just know from early on, man, that kid is going to be trouble. Sometimes it's because of parenting. <laughs> you, didn't have any, you didn't have any fingers pointing at you. I, I know, I remember, even when I was a kid, up through junior high, there were some kids in my class that I knew were going to be in jail someday. By the time I was in college, do you know that every single one of those that I thought was going to be in jail were in jail? Every single one of them. And bottom line is, I mean, I was no angel either, but at the same time, I had a good upbringing and I, didn't, I wasn't making the decisions that they were doing. I knew what was wrong. And... I just think that, like I said, sometimes from early on you know that kids are going to do that, but other times the world comes in and, and just grabs you. But it's harder for those people who that's all they've known. And I think that's why the Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not turn from it. That does not, that's not a promise that, hey, you train your kids in God's word, they're in like Flynn. That is not what that's saying. What it's saying is God is never going to turn his back on them. They will always. Maybe they're out partying and drinking and doing things they shouldn't be doing. And that scripture verse that you gave them when a child, God's going to put it right in their mind. They're going to remember it. 
It's going to be there to constantly be tugging and pulling on that child to bring them back to him because he loves you and doesn't want you to be godless like Esau. Verse 27, back in chapter 25 here, Jacob was a mild man dwelling in the tents. The Targum says this, But Jacob was a man peaceful in his works, a minister of instruction. The house of Eber seeking instruction before the Lord. Basically, he dwelt there. So, like I was saying before, it means that he was studying God's word. Verse 28 Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die, so what's this birthright to me? So Jacob is taking this opportunity to barter with Esau ultimately, but why is the question? Is he being deceptive or is it that Jacob desires what is better? That he desires the good things, that he's chasing after the treasure. Is that bad? Yeah, if you know that there's godliness and there's godly blessings in something and you've got a deceptive brother who does not, not care about it, I'll take care of it. I'll, I'll use it like it's supposed to be used kind of attitude. So Esau's response to selling the birthright is, who cares? I'm hungry. This flesh, feed it. And this is kind of a picture of an eternity, eternity, so much more than material things is. When you talk about this birthright, we're not talking about, you know, getting dad's car and his guns. We're talking about a spiritual blessing here. We're not talking about material things. It's all spiritual. Now, there will be material things that will follow because of the spiritual, but the birthright is a spiritual thing. So, when it says, don't be godless like Esau, part of the lesson is this, don't be chasing after the things of this world. You know, your new boat, new car, new gun, new house, new whatever it might be. That those things will perish. Doesn't mean you can't have those things. But if that's where your heart's at and that's where your focus and what you're striving for in life to build a better kingdom here on this earth, that's being godless like Esau. That is not what we're here for. God never once put you here as that to be your goal. He puts you here as a goal to you know, gain righteousness through him and then share that righteousness with others. Life is but a breath. I ask people sometimes, you know, Ray Comfort used to do it all the time, what would you like to be doing 10 years from now? I'll ask kids at high school this all the time. And I'm telling you, they've got all these plans laid out. I'm going to be done with college. I'm going to be driving this nice, you know, souped-up car. Uh, I'm going to have a hot wife. Uh, you know, I'm going to have whatever. I mean, they've got a whole list of everything laid out. And I said, well, what do you want to be doing 25 years from now? And 
then it's like, you know, I hope maybe then I'll have some kids and, you know, just the American dream. What do you hope to be doing 75 years from now? Well, if I'm alive, I hope that I'm, you know, able to retire, do some golfing, you know, whatever. How about 150 years from now? Well, I'll be dead. Yeah, but you'll still be around. Maybe your body won't be here, but you're going to be alive. What do you want to be doing 250 years from now? 500 years from now? 1,100 years from now? A million years from now? You see, you're going to be dead a lot longer than you are going to be alive. The time that you have here on this earth is but a breath compared to an eternity. Don't you think that we ought to be spending some time investing in what you're going to be doing for an eternity rather than investing all of this time, what you're going to be doing for the next 50 years? Because I'm telling you, the older I get, the more I'm realizing 50 years is nothing. It is but a breath. And we are so focused on this world and building our kingdom here that we forget that's all going to burn real soon. But in eternity is forever. So don't be godless like Esau for a bowl of stew. Your new car, your house, your whatever, for a bowl of stew, sold his birthright and didn't care about the things of the spirit, the spiritual matters. Preparing for an eternity. To me, it's kind of like us saying, you know, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Do you realize? Wait, yeah, thank you. Good. Now, hey, Super Bowl Sunday coming up. Right? Just, yeah, 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 we know, we know. Now let's get on to what I'm really interested in. Chapter 25, it continues in verse 33. Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. And then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He ate, drank, he went his way. Like no big deal. He didn't care. He despised his birthright. The Targum says this. Jacob gave to Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he ate and drank and arose and went, and Esau scorned the birthright and the portion of the world that cometh. Notice there that the Targum picks up that it wasn't just material, but it was spiritual. He not only despised the birthright of anything on earth, but the birthright of eternity. So really, both of them got what they wanted. But in the end, only one of them was going to be satisfied. I think of that scripture verse and song that I don't want to, you know, uh, how is that worded? Um, don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. That's an Esau moment right there. Um, so I think all of us, part of the point that I want you to go home thinking about is what's your bowl of stew? You know, what are you willing to sell out? I, I'll be honest, I'm a little concerned, and just even with what I'm seeing in this world, now again, maybe the vaccine is fine, I don't know, right now I doubt it. That being the case, I'm just seeing a lot of people being willing to take a vaccine for the possibility of not being able to travel in the future. Okay? That's a big trade, yeah. So what is your bolus do? Is it traveling? Is it going to be able to go and buy or sell? Go to Walmart to get anything or even to sell and, and you have no money? Is that your bolus stew? 
Because the Bible talks about in Revelation, there's a time coming when you will not be able to buy or sell unless you have a mark of the beast. And if you don't, or I should say, if you do take that mark of the beast, it says you go to hell. That's an Esau moment. Here. I keep thinking about Jamie Walden's thing, just mercy. So they take my kid. My kid dies. Mercy. God gave him mercy. He doesn't have to see all this garbage that's going to happen. I think that's a good perspective to keep. Now, with that said, because I agree with you, but I also don't want you to forget the hope and the faith and the trust that we have in God that he's going to be there for us too. Not saying you won't have hard times, but I don't want you to forget and be hopeless. I don't want to be here anymore because this is going to be awful. That's not living in faith. That's not trusting God either. If we all have that attitude of, all right, let's just get me out now, that's, that's not where he wants us to be. I get it. Don't take me wrong. I get that. But I also know what the truth is. And the truth is we're supposed to be just trusting God and we're supposed to go through that joyfully. And I think he'll give us the grace to do that. It's that American culture coming out in us again that we don't want to be uncomfortable. You know, it's just like, oh, anything uncomfortable I want to flee from. And like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, no, that's where we grow. That's where we're going to see the hand of God moving. That's where we're going to see some miracles and mighty... I think I told you before, when we were in India, when I was speaking in India there, not only everywhere we went did we rely on prayer, but I saw the joy of people that I didn't see in America. I went to a house, this, this guy's house just got burned down that week because he was a Christian, the only Christian in his whole village, you know, they have the caste system over there. And so they burned his house down and he had to escape through flames on both sides of the door. And he and his six kids were now living in a hole in the ground that I couldn't even get far enough. They had Bible verses in their language on paper put into the mud wall. And I couldn't even get back far enough to get a picture of it. And they had six kids in this thing. And I remember when I first got there to India, thinking, oh, how do people live like this? I mean, this is unbelievable. And I thought, this is going to be a long week. By the time I left, I was like, I can see how people live here because they're not focused. And I, I remember coming home saying, shame on you, Brian. Shame on you that you thought their happiness had to be because they had a nice home, a nice job and money and, and you know, uh, the assurance of food on their table every night. Shame on you. Because they were happier than I was. I saw people missing teeth with the biggest grins on their face and so happy. I saw them going to church. When I spoke at their church, it would be like finding a 1940 or 30 house, small little one-story home somewhere. You know how those little rooms were so small. They packed that thing so that when I was speaking, I only got to see about 10 people, and there was a 10 in this room, and another 10 in that room, and another 12 in this room, and they were just packed literally shoulder to shoulder. And they were as happy as could be. And I thought, you know why they were happy? Because they had Jesus. And do you know what God was doing? Working. I heard so many stories of this one guy told me through an interpreter, so I hope it was all right, but <laughs> he told me that, uh, well, it was the same guy that the house got burned down. He needed money, so he had to go out to the jungles to get food 
And so he was working in the jungles, and apparently it's really hard work and whatnot. These elephants were in this field that they were supposed to be harvesting, and they wouldn't leave, and you can't go in there because they'll attack you. And he said, they wouldn't leave, and we couldn't work. We weren't getting paid. They were, for a couple of days, they would not leave the field. And they were yelling, and they made these clackers, he said, to try and scare them off, and they wouldn't go. He said, finally, I yelled. I said, in the name of Jesus, he says, leave this field. And he said they looked, lifted up their elephants, uh, their heads, and they walked off. And he said there were these other guys with me, and they looked at me, and they said, Who is this Jesus that listens to you and commands elephants to leave? <laughs> and, I mean, I could tell you story upon story, another guy telling me about light. I mean, I probably heard in that short period of time six, seven people within the church telling me how God had worked in powerful ways in their life. Why? Because they trust him and they were in need of it. We are comfortable. God, when we need you, we'll let you know. Right? Oh, this trial happened. Now I'll call you Jesus. Please help me. Please. Right? No. They rely on him every day. And I'm telling you, if that comes to America, when that comes to America, I'm telling you, you're going to see God moving. You will see him moving. I'm not saying you're not going to have troubles. These guys had homes and dirt, but they were happy because their happiness was not bound up in material things. And there's a blessing in that. Anyway. I'm going to start wrapping up here. Malachi 1, verse 2 says, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way you have loved us? Have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. This is scripture. And guys, when you look up that word hate, it's hate. The Bible says he hated Esau. And like I said for years, I struggled with this. But it's what God, it's Psalm 5. You know, I, there, there's so many verses. God hating wickedness. Hating sin. And if that's where our heart is, you know, it's just like somewhere recently I was hearing somebody saying that Oh, I know what it was. Anyway, nothing personal. I just, the theology thing. Talking about somebody talking to them and that they weren't hearing his prayers. It felt like God wasn't listening. And the answer was basically, oh, he's listening. Maybe he's just not answering the way you want. No. Guys, sometimes God will not listen to your prayers. Read uh, Proverbs or Psalm 66, I think it is, verse 13. David says, if I held iniquity in my heart, like Esau was doing, God would not have listened to me, to my prayers. Proverbs 28, verse 9, if I turn a deaf ear to God's law, even my prayers are detestable to God. If you're holding iniquity in your heart, like Esau, if you're turning your deaf ear to the law of God, your prayers are detestable to God. That's what it's saying here. I hated Esau. He was detestable to him. We don't like to talk about that today in the Christian communities because God is this God of love and it's okay, you're fine just the way you are. You don't need to change. He loves you. You just need to know the treasure's there. It's easy. No, it's not. It's hard work, but it's joyful work, but it's hard work. So, anyway, um, 
Even Jesus, by the way, remember in his prayer in uh, is it John 17, he says, my prayer is for them. I do not pray for the world. That's what he said in John 17. Jesus' own words in the New Testament, I do not pray for them. I don't pray for the world. He was only praying for his, his children. So if he's not praying for them, that's kind of the same, same picture that you see there. So, I mean, that, that's huge. I mean, wow, God doesn't even pray for them. Jesus wouldn't pray for them. So Esau, being a picture of the world, makes that bowl of stew, when you see what his outcome is, makes that bowl of stew not so tempting. At least I hope it does, that the world loses its shine and glitter. You know? It goes on here in Hebrews 12, uh, verse 16, to do our last verse. It says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. That word profane there in Greek is accessible like permitted to be trodden on. Isn't that interesting? Lest any fornicator or profane person, someone, when you start walking outside of God's law, what do you do? You make it permissible to be trodden on by the devil. I've said this so many times, part of the reason of God's law, it's not to get you to heaven. Jesus did that. It's a protection for you. It's a way of life because... God loves you and he wants to keep you safe. Just like the rules you set for your kids in your home, it's not for them to become your children. It's to love them and protect them and to keep them safe so that they don't get trodden upon. And that's the word profane here. So Esau opened the door up for the devil by doing that, by walking in disobedience. Verse 17, For you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing... He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. That's important. He wanted it back, but not if he had to repent. He also just wanted it back at the last minute. Yep, and it sounds like probably for material reasons then. Though he sought it with tears, but not... Not enough to repent. How's that for the Christian community today? Are, are there people today who want that treasure so much, want to seek it, but not enough to stop doing what they're doing? Not enough to go seek. Not enough to honor the Sabbath. Not enough to uh, obey His commandments in any way, shape, or form. To honor their father and mother. Not enough to allow God to tell us how we should dress, what we should eat, how we should talk. I mean, the scriptures are full of things on all of those things. Don't let any foolish talk come out of your mouth, or, you know, don't set any vile thing before your eyes, in Proverbs it says. So, are we Esau? It's like, well, yeah, I want to be, but I'm not, there's a limit to what I'm going to do to chase after this treasure. I'm still going to keep this part of the world. Only you can answer that, but I'll tell you what, that's scary when I think about that. Kind of reminds me, you say it was the last moment. 
Remember what happens when Jesus, the, the parable of the ten virgins and all these others, when the last hour comes, it is too late. Those workers that were going out, it's too, the, the last hour, nobody is hired. At the last moment here with Esau, doesn't matter. You'll be rejected. It's too late. So don't wait for tomorrow. Choose this day whom you will follow. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So that's just a, a like I said, that's, that's scary right there. There is a time when it is going to be too late. Um, well, another example, when they were going into the promised land, right? They go in. They didn't want to be obedient and listen to God's word. Oh, we can't go in. We, we don't trust you. And then God says, how dare you? And they, okay, okay, we'll go in now. And he says, it's too late. Well, we're going in anyway. And they get wiped out. He says, no, you're going to go for 40 years out into the desert. But it was too late. Um, there will be those in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, we perform miracles in your name. I can't help but think those are Esau's. Because they were going to church. These were those false prophets, those that looked good on the outside, but on the inside clearly had something wrong with them. I think that's an Esau. They'll be rejected. I don't know who you are. So basically what I see this verse saying is that Esau couldn't get his heart where it needed to be. And how does it get there? Through repentance. I think that that is such a huge part, this repentance. Let me give you another verse and then I'm going to kind of close on, on just one last thought. Amos 1.11, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not turn away its punishment. Because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. Notice that he cast off all pity. That's the same thing that I think we were just reading here, that he found no place for repentance. Same thing. We were listening to... Todd Friel talk about Ravi Zacharias. I'm sure you all know by now. You've all probably heard of Ravi Zacharias, this huge name among Christianity. This great apologist. And he died not too many months ago, and it comes out that he had basically been molesting girls, women in a massage parlor, and, and what was that? Manipulating them, and just bad things. I, I haven't even read all of what he did. I don't know all of the deals outside of I know it was sexual sin and it was bad. Ray Comfort, sometime years ago, kind of put out a little bit of a warning, not with just kind of like the Paul when he talks about at the end of Paul's letters. You know, he often says and give greeting. So and so gives greeting and so and so gives greeting and whatnot. And he's this and you know he's a brother in the Lord. And on one of them he says, oh, and by the way, Demetrius or uh, Demas, and Demas says hi. Just kind of like, all right, and, and by the way, here, he's here too. But he doesn't, he, he lifts all these other people up and then he just says, oh, and Demas. And then later on, we see Demas abandons them. Demas was an Esau, looked good on the outside, but there was something in Paul that knew there's something not right with Demas. 
That's kind of what Ray Comfort did. He was just saying, you know, yeah, Robbie Zacharias, he's got some good stuff, but he says, you know, a lot of times you basically uh, read between the stories and, you know, testimonies and all of that, all of his anecdotes, um, anecdotes that, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I really know what he said. And what they were saying is this. You go and you look in his testimony that he would give. You never heard a thing about repentance. Not a thing. You never heard him talk about repentance. When I look about this, that's where my mind was going here this week. I listened to a sermon here this week and... Sounded kind of good, but you know what? I didn't hear a thing about repentance, and that kind of just kept in my mind. The guy calling, saying, God doesn't listen to my prayers. I feel like that. I think the first thing that we should say is, what do you need to repent of? But we don't talk about repentance. What we're, our churches are filled with today is this. Let's worship God. Let's worship God so that we can be blessed. Worship Him. Fall on your... Uh, well, don't fall on your knees. That's what I'd like to hear. But it's, it's all about a blessing. Yeah, yeah, right. It's about a blessing. How I can be blessed and, and to chase after the blessing. Well, that's not untrue. But I'll tell you what, that's what Jacob or Esau was doing, isn't it? I want the blessing. I want the here now blessing, not the eternal blessing. And the eternal blessing is going to be found by falling on your face, your knees, crying out, repenting, and doing like even what that Catholic priest was doing in just walking off the stage, well, the, the pulpit or whatever it was, in anger, righteous anger, because we as a church have not repented of our sins. We tolerate all of this stuff. Oh, we'll gripe about it with each other, but we don't stand up against it. We don't, we don't look like fools standing up in church when something and standing up and saying, that is heresy. I haven't done it either. I'm not saying I will, but I want to. Do you know what I'm saying? That we need repentance. This is what we need. We need a fire in our hearts. We need Jeremiah 20. You know, that there's a fire in our bones and I cannot hold it in. Indeed, I'm weary of trying to hold it in. I can't. It's got to come out. We've got to stop this pornography. I'm not going to tolerate sin in this church. I'm not going to tolerate you sweeping this sin under the rug. I'm not going to tolerate this abortion going on in my town. I'm not going to tolerate this guy saying he's caught in pornography or, you know, I just, I'm having a hard time with it. I'm going to get in your face and say, enough, stop. And I, we talked about that a few months ago with Jamie Walden. It's like, yes, preach it, brother. That's what we need. We need more of those people. And you know what? It won't change the world. You've got to stop thinking that it's going to change the world. It isn't about changing the world. It's about standing up for God, and it's changing your eternity. You will not... This world, the Bible tells me in John, that it is under the control of the evil one. The whole world is being controlled by the evil one. And I got news for you. What's going on in America right now is nothing new. 
the, the saintness, the, the, the evils that you, I don't even want to speak about, have been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries. I'm not here because I think I can change the world and bring the kingdom of God here. I'm going to stand up because I'm faithful to God, and He's going to be faithful to me. And that's all that matters. Look at Ezekiel. Did he change the world? No. Elijah, did he change the world? No. As a matter of fact, he runs away and he says, God, they have killed all your prophets. They've torn down your altars and I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Every single one of these guys never changed the world, but they, they changed pockets of people. That changes the kingdom of God. Yep. We do it regardless. Is it the old Sonic Flood or Newsboys or something? The, the audience of one. We're here to have an audience of one. To please God. Not to please you, but to please Him. And Because bottom line, there's no way I can all please you guys. There's no way. You'll never, you'll never be able to... No pastor in the world will be, ever, be able to please his whole congregation. He shouldn't even be worried about pleasing his congregation. He should be worried about pleasing God. That's it. And so we stand for righteousness. Or else, guys, that's why I wanted to look at Esau. Esau is a picture of that right there. I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul who for one meal despised his birthright. So. All right, let's pray. Dear God, uh, just help us to be bold. Father, just empower us not to worry about what people think of us, but to worry what you say. God, just teach us your word. I, I, I keep coming back to this. Teach us your ways so that we may know you, so that we may continue to find favor with you. God, we do not want to blend in with this world. We don't want to be those that, that are using cheap grace in any way, shape, or form. That we realize that there is a treasure. God, I want to seek it. I want to, I want to know you, and I want to know you more. And yes, I do want to worship you. I do want to praise you, but God, it's so much more than that. Show me and, and everyone here, Lord, the things in our life that, that dross and the, the, the things that need to be removed, the things that we need to just flee from. You tell us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Turn your laughter to mourning. Turn your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and you will lift us up. Let us be that. Let that be our prayer tonight. In the name of Yeshua we pray. Amen.